Good afternoon. What are you hungry for? Well, it's a question a friend or a spouse might ask you on occasion. Maybe you'll ask each other that question as you exit the room this afternoon. What are you hungry for? And maybe you'd answer the question by saying like, I'm really hungry for biryani. Or maybe I want meat lover's pizza. You know, I could really go for a frosty milkshake right now. But what if that's not the kind of answer that your friend or your spouse was looking for? You misunderstood the question. Instead, you might have answered the question, that very same question, by saying something like, well, I'm really hungry for deep contentment and soul-satisfying friendship. That's what I want. Maybe you could have answered and said, I really want a life of love and joy even in the midst of this sin-stained world. That's what I'm hungry for. Maybe, maybe, just maybe you could have said, I'm hungry for the thing or, or the one, the one who will satisfy all of my hungers forever. You're hungry to know God. You're hungry to live forever immersed in His grace and His mercy and His glory. Why ask for pizza when you could ask to know God intimately, the one who satisfies every hunger that you've ever had forever? In our passage today, Jesus is offering Himself to the Jewish crowd. He's offering them a life of everlasting grace and mercy and glory in Himself, but they don't understand. They don't believe in Him. They'd rather just have Jesus give them a daily loaf of bread. Do you want what God can give you? Or do you want God? Do you want the gift or do you want the giver? In last week's passage, Jesus gathered his disciples to himself on a mountain on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. But then a crowd of thousands who had seen the signs that Jesus was doing on the other side ran all the way around the lake and they found he and his disciples up on that mountain. They were probably 20,000 in number because there were 5,000 men. And then Jesus fed those approximately 20,000 people until they were full. They couldn't eat anymore. And He fed them from just five barley loaves and two fish. There was so much, so much to go around that they had 12 baskets full of bread and fish left over that they gathered up. They had all just had a miracle meal from the hands of Jesus. And then that night, as the disciples labored to cross the Sea of Galilee in a boat without Jesus, Jesus came to them walking on the water, and they welcomed Him into the boat. At first, they were frightened, but He calmed their fears, and He welcomed them in, and then they miraculously reached the shore, safe and sound, 
just as He intended for them. The true story that's happening in John chapter 6 that I've just recounted to you, it's continuing in John chapter 6, and that's where we are this afternoon. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6, and we're continuing this true story looking at verses 22 through 40. Follow along with me as I read. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with His disciples, but that His disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor His disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Let's pray and ask the Lord to give us spiritual insight into His Word. Heavenly Father, we, we have hunger. We have hungers that we try to satisfy in all the wrong ways, and yet you stand before us offering us yourself to satisfy every hunger forever. Oh Lord, give us insight in your word, help us hear it, be convicted by it, be assured by it, and built up in it. Oh Lord, would you save through your word today even? 
In Christ's name, amen. Well, from this passage, I think that God wants us most to believe in Jesus sent by the Father for eternal life that satisfies every hunger. Believe in Jesus sent by the Father for eternal life that satisfies every hunger. The crowd has followed Jesus around the lake and now back to Capernaum on the western side of the lake. We know that from verse 59 if we were to read ahead. And what we see in the conversation between Jesus and the people from verses 22 to 29 are the first of three points this afternoon, is that the people see Jesus as a perpetual bread and meat machine. (laughs) If they're right, that he's the prophet like Moses foretold in the Old Testament, which they declared back on the other side of the lake when he did the miracle. If they're right about that, then they'll never not have food if they stay close to Jesus. He'll always feed them. He's going to keep making bread, keep making the fish multiply for them. Only miraculous bread and meat isn't what Jesus came to give them. And they're not responding to Jesus appropriately to get what He did come to give them. Their motives and their goals are wrong in coming to Jesus. The first point that we see in verses 22 to 29 are this, do God's work of believing in Jesus. Do God's work of believing in in Jesus. In these verses, 22 to 24, they tell us how the crowd found Jesus, and it sets the scene for the conversation that follows. They find Him, and then they ask questions, and Jesus answers. It goes back and forth like that throughout our passage. And their first question is just a simple question, Rabbi, when did you come here? But Jesus already knows what they came to Him for, and He's not going to bother with answering silly questions. And so he tells them straight away that their motives are wrong for coming to him. You're coming to me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Basically, you're just hungry again. That's why you've come to me. They didn't, well, they did see the sign, but they didn't see what the sign was pointing to. They didn't see the deeper meaning in the sign. And so Jesus tells them what they should be seeking. Look at verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. So He wants them to see the importance of what He really came to give, spiritual food that comes from His eternal life. And he's qualified to give it because the Father has set his seal on him. And what that means is that the Father has certified, guaranteed that the one and only Son is his chosen person to give out that spiritual food. But instead of pondering the meaning of eternal life and what Jesus was talking about when he replied to them, they latch on to this idea of work, the work of God. And so they ask, What must we do to do the works of God? Jesus says, believe in Him whom He has sent. 
To gain eternal life in Christ, they must believe in Him, and we must believe in Him as well. Believing in God has always been necessary for knowing God. And when the Bible speaks about believing, it's not just talking about saying, oh yeah, I think that's true. It means trusting in or entrusting yourself to Jesus. It's always been that way since God first made man and woman. You know, Adam and Eve trusted God perfectly. They believed Him. They believed in Him until the serpent questioned whether they should trust God or not, and their trust was broken and eroded. So in the Garden of Eden, it was disbelief and distrust in God and His Word that led Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Disbelieving God in their hearts and minds preceded disobeying God in their actions. Disobedient actions always follow from disbelieving God. And it's true for us as well. And so it's belief that restores our relationship with God. That's where it has to start. One of the most important verses in the Old Testament is Genesis 15, 6. Speaking of Abram, Moses writes about him, and he believed the Lord and He, God, counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed God's promises, and God credited him with righteousness. He gifted it him righteousness right there and then. Later in the New Testament, Paul would write something that echoes what Jesus is saying here in these verses, in fact. In Romans 3.29, Paul writes, for we hold that one, a person, is justified by faith, or believing, apart from the works of the law. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there are at least two possible mistakes here that we can make, like the crowds that stood in front of Jesus. Number one, we can spend our lives working for food that perishes. And that can look like living to build a successful career or raising a family that's perfect and ideal. Or maybe if you're a student working for food that perishes might mean that grades and academic accomplishments are your number one goal in life. Food that perishes is anything that is our ultimate goal other than God and the salvation that's found in Him. That's food that perishes. Now, if you're not a Christian, this church is really, I think, a great place to come and learn about Christianity. But let me ask you a question. Have you thought about what your ultimate goal in life is? Have you thought about what you're really working for, most of all? Are you sure that it's not food that perishes? just like Jesus talks about it here? Is it something that might be satisfying now, might be pleasing to the people around you even, but someday later, it is not going to satisfy, especially on the day of judgment? 
when you stand before God, it will be of no use to you. Secondly, another mistake that we can make is to have eternal life in Jesus as our goal, but believe that we can get it through some kind of earthly works or religious works. I mean, it is a little confusing here, isn't it? Jesus uses this term of do the work of believing. It's ironic because believing isn't a work. And Jesus is just using their terminology. He's saying, look, do the work of believing. It's not really work. You don't have to do any work. God doesn't owe us forgiveness and grace because we've believed in Jesus. The definition of grace, of course, is unearned favor. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. And now it doesn't seem to make sense, but people, all people, have always wanted to earn what they think God has to offer including us. It's in us. We want to earn it. Why? Why would we want to earn it if we're promised a free gift of eternal life? I'll tell you why. Because of pride. Pride drives us to want what God gives because He saw something good in us, because He saw something worthy in us. And because we deserve it then. Christian, the good works that follow after you believed in Jesus don't contribute anything to your salvation. You didn't get yourself halfway there and then God made up the rest. No, but the moment that you believed in Christ with true faith in that instant before you had done anything in faith, before you had taken any actions of obedience to God, you were joined together with Him through the Spirit's indwelling presence in you, and righteousness was credited to you, the perfect righteousness of Jesus. You had it then. And you don't have anything more now just because of anything that you've done after that point to live for God. At that moment, everything that was His became yours. All your sin and shame and disobedience was put on Him and paid for on the cross. And at that same moment, everything that He has became yours as well. Most importantly, His righteousness. Because you were united with Him. You were in union with Him. When God looked at you, He sees Christ. When God looks at Christ, He sees you. It was credited to you just like it was credited to Abram. This is what we mean when we say that salvation is a free gift and it's not of works. Ephesians 2, of course, says that for us so clearly. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. If you did any works for it, then you could boast, but you can't because you didn't do anything to deserve it. Because receiving the eternal life that Christ gives come through, comes through the work, so to speak, of belief, we can be assured that what Jerry Bridges, the author, says is true. He says this, our worst days are never so bad 
that we're beyond the reach of God's grace, and our best days are never so good that we're not in need of God's grace, His free gift. That's right. On your worst day, you get grace even though you don't deserve it. And on your best day, your best day is still not good enough to deserve God's grace. You still need it. Simple belief is what secures the free gift, brothers and sisters. Do the work of simply believing in Jesus. Look, you don't have to do anything to become a Christian. There's lots of things that you should do that the Bible tells you to be obedient to God in after you become a Christian. But you can become a Christian right there in your chair, right there in your seat. You can turn in your heart and mind and trust in Christ. You can renounce your sin and trust Him. Simply believe in Jesus. It's a work that involves no work on your part. Now, the conversation continues between the crowd and Jesus, and now they begin to press for another sign, more bread, more meat, maybe something better Jesus has in store. Here, Jesus makes the point even clearer for them than in the next verses 30 through 36. He's telling them to get life that satisfies forever in Jesus. Get life that satisfies forever in Jesus. Look at verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? If we're to believe you, then you need to do something additional for us. Show us another sign. And of course, they remind Jesus of what Moses did by giving them bread in heaven, their ancestors, that is. They quote from the Old Testament, multiple passages actually, that they're blending together. And Jesus responds with another emphatic statement beginning with truly, truly. He really wants them to listen up when He says truly, truly. He says, it wasn't Moses that gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Moses didn't give your ancestors bread. God did. And Jesus is telling them, Now God is giving you better bread than manna, true bread from heaven. And that true bread is a he, it's a person. It's not a thing you hold in your hand, you put in your mouth. But they still can only think about real bread that you can hold in your hands and put in your mouth. And so they demand, sir, give us this bread always. And this is just like what the woman at the well to whom Jesus promised living water, said to Jesus back in chapter 4, I don't know if you remember that, but she said, sir, give me this water. (laughs) Here it's, sir, give me this bread. Back then it was, sir, give me this water. One commentator says about the crowds, instead of seeing in the miraculous bread a sign pointing to Jesus, they see in the sign only bread itself. Let me say that one more time. Instead of seeing in the miraculous bread a sign pointing to Jesus, they see in the sign only the bread itself. And so he says it as plainly as it can be said. Look at verse 35, one of the most famous verses here in the Bible and in the book of John. 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then in verse 36, in his direct answer to their, is his direct answer to their demand back in verse 30. They said, what sign do you give that we may see and believe you? And Jesus says here in 36, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. They're focused on their material need, and He wants them to see their spiritual need. Jesus has come to be their rescuer, sent from God. And one commentator says of Jesus in this situation, they want a different kind of rescue to what He has come to bring. Their goal is materialistic, and so they want a political king who will meet their material needs through their religious works. A political king who meets their material needs through their religious works. John Piper has a book called God is the Gospel. It's an interesting title, God is the Gospel. He says in it, faith is not saving faith if it tries to trust Christ for the wrong things. Faith is not saving faith if it tries to trust Christ for the wrong things. To get the all-satisfying, never-ending life that's in Jesus, you need to get Jesus. You you can't get what He offers apart from Himself. So listen, listen to Dr. Piper again. He says, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there, will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we've not been converted by the gospel. So I ask you, beloved, What have you been praying for lately? What have you been asking God for? Or what have you asked others to pray for you about? Is there anything beyond daily bread or getting out of somehow difficult circumstances and Once again, it's not wrong to pray for daily bread. It's not wrong to pray for difficult circumstances you're in. Jesus taught us to pray, right? Give us this day our daily bread. But He went on to teach them to pray and forgive us our debts as we forgive others. Oh, Lord, forgive us of our sin. We're aware of our spiritual situation, and we're aware of our inclination to hold grudges And be bitter against those who sin against us. And Lord, help us not be drawn into temptation, but deliver us from evil, Lord. We need spiritual rescue just as much as we need daily bread. Our spiritual needs far outstrip our physical needs, and those can only be met in the person of Christ. I mean, it's no mistake that Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these things like food and shelter and clothing, the things that your Father in heaven knows you need. 
Think about what we pray for, praying for members in the pastoral prayer. Even today, when Michael came up and prayed a prayer and led us, and he prayed for Chichi Ebay, prayed for others in our congregation. Think about what he prayed for. We know, we know the difficult circumstances that many of you all are in. Probably not all of them, of course, but we have a small enough church I can page through the directory and I know many of the things at least you have been dealing with. We could pray for those things. We do pray for those things. But when we pray, we also pray, oh Lord, open the eyes of their heart so that they know the hope to which you've called them. Lord, strengthen them with power through your spirit so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Oh Lord, protect them from evil. Help them grow up in maturity in Christ and bring glory and honor to you this week in every thought and deed and word. Pray for some kind of spiritual growth and formation for yourself every day. Ask Christ to show more of Himself to you. And these kinds of topics need to be part of our regular conversations with one another as well. Asking questions like, what has God been teaching you in sermons or Bible reading lately? What's an area of spiritual maturity that you'd like to see yourself grow in? Jesus is telling them and telling us, do you want life, abundant life? Come to me and I will give it to you freely because I give you myself. You get me. Get the life that satisfies forever by getting Jesus. Now, Jesus continues in verses 37 through 40 by both explaining why the crowd doesn't believe in Him, and also assuring the crowd that He and His Father are cooperating in perfect harmony to offer and give the eternal life that's in God to everyone who comes to the Son and believes in Him. The third point this afternoon is be assured that the Father saves in Jesus. Be assured that the Father saves in Jesus. One of the wrong views of God, about God, that people sometimes hold on to is that God the Father is angry with us because of sin, and it's His Son, Jesus, who is gracious and the kind person of the Godhead who pays the penalty for our sin, taking the wrath of the angry Father on Himself and thus saving us. But an angry father and a merciful Jesus pits those two persons of the Trinity against one another. Instead, we see in these verses that the Father and the Son are in perfect union in salvation. The Father gives people to the Son so that they'll be saved. That's in verse 37. Look there, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The Father's involved in salvation just as much as the Son is. He goes on to say that the Father's will is the same will as the Son. It's God's will that none who come to Jesus will be lost, but all of them who come to Him will be saved. Verses 38 and 39 and 40 as well. 
Whatever God does involves perfect agreement and unity between the persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, and and actually, though He's not mentioned here, the Holy Spirit as well. They are working together in salvation. Any explanation of the gospel or salvation that pits one person of the Trinity against another is not being true to Scripture. Think of the song that we sing sometimes here at Covenant Hope, how deep the Father's love for us. The Father, because of His great love, sent Jesus into the world. The Father and the Son are not in opposition to one another. Now, if you're in Christ, then it was the Father who, for His own glory and because of His great love, gave you to His Son to be saved. Truly, we are beloved. In these few verses as well, we're taught one of the truths and mysteries of God's Word. First, God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, he said this right after he said, you've seen but you don't believe. Verse 39, and this is the will of Him who sent me that I should lose none of all that He has given me. And that is why they don't believe in Him even though they've seen Him. The Father has not given this crowd to Him. Now, that doesn't mean that someday in the future some of those people who were there wouldn't come to Jesus and believe in Him, but they're not doing it now. God saves from first to last. We can claim no part of our salvation. God and only God has done it. What a great assurance this is, brothers and sisters. If any part of our salvation depended on you or any part of my salvation depended on me, then, look, as far as I'm concerned, I would be lost if it depended on me. But none of it depends on me and none of it depends on you. There is no work that you did that contributed to your salvation. You weren't smarter than the next person who didn't receive Christ. You weren't wiser than anyone else in coming to Christ. You weren't more worthy, but God chose you and gave you to His Son. This truth, this truth will slay our pride. Oh, and what a gracious thing that is to have our pride slayed. Think of the most sinful person, the most wicked person that you know other than yourself. (laughs) If there's anything less sinful in you than is in them, it's no credit to you. It's not because of you. It's all God and only God that's brought it about. And so we praise God. We praise God for every act of obedience in our lives. Every evidence of righteousness is to His glory and His glory alone. But along with the assurance that God is sovereign in salvation and that He accomplishes it from first to last, we see man's responsibility to act, to come to Jesus. It's right there in those verses, right alongside the sovereignty verses as well. Verse 35, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me. Verse 37, whoever comes to me. Verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him. Do you see Jesus here in the pages of Scripture? 
Do you hear him making this universal, unlimited invitation? Come to me. Do you see that he is the bread of life? You must go to him. You must choose to believe in him. You must make a decision to entrust yourself to him. Now, if you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you, don't ask this question, how can I know if the Father has given me to the Son? How can I figure that out? How can I know if the Father has chosen me? Don't ask that. Rather ask yourself, why have I not believed in Him if I hear this generous offer from Jesus? Why have I not gone to Him and simply trusted Him? That's all you must do. Or perhaps you're a believer and you're doubting, you're wondering, you're asking the question, am I really saved? Oh, friend, reassure yourself by turning to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Talk to Jesus. Ask Him to strengthen your faith. That's what He's there for. He knows we're weak and our faith is withering oftentimes. Turn to Him. And be encouraged when He does. The sovereignty of God in salvation and the responsibility of man to go to Christ and believe in Him. These two truths are taught throughout Scripture, all throughout Scripture. They do not conflict. They're compatible. In fact, to hold on to these truths together is called compatibilism. They're compatible. Now, two things that holding on to these beliefs does for us, beloved, is this. Number one, we have great confidence to share the gospel and know that God will save some through our testimony. We know it because salvation is from God from first to last. God uses our testimony, but we can be confident that there are some that God has chosen and is leading to the Son so that He can lavish His grace on them. And so we share with confidence and we share with great hope, not based on our skills as evangelists or our sufficiency in Bible knowledge. No, no, no. It's based on God. Oh, what confidence that gives us in sharing the gospel. And secondly, we work to persuade others to come to Christ. We want to persuade. Jesus didn't sit back and say, well, because the Father saves from first to last, I have no need to preach the good news to the crowds. No, no. He was persuading them. <clears throat> he was reasoning with them. He was pleading with them, in fact. He persisted in explaining. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade others. And so we must as well, brothers and sisters. Have you prayed for opportunities to persuade others? Would you be so bold as to introduce others to Christ and the unlimited benefits that are found in Him, to reason with a work colleague, to explain to another student at your university or in your high school what Christ came to do and why you believe in Him. This is our privilege and our responsibility. 
Christ is holding himself out as the bread of life to this crowd that so desperately needs him. And they are disappointed that he's not going to create more daily bread for them again. You know, they wanted too little from Christ. And though they've seen him, they don't believe in him. C.S. Lewis says this about us. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in the slums because we can't even imagine what is meant by being offered a holiday at the seaside. We're far too easily pleased. What are you hungry for? Mud pies in the slums when all the while you could have a holiday by the seaside? Oh, brothers and sisters, oh, friends, believe in Jesus who was sent by our loving Father to give us eternal life that satisfies every hunger we have forever. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we praise you that you, in your lavish love, sent Jesus into the world. We praise you that through us who are filled with your Spirit, you are continuing to see the gospel proclaimed all throughout the world. And even today, today, people will hear the good news of the gospel and they will turn and believe in you. Oh, Lord, we pray that it would happen more and more here in Dubai and through us and other gospel-preaching churches in this city and this country. Oh, Lord, we pray for a revival. We pray that the deepest hungers of people would be met in you. In Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's sing to this Jesus together. Stand with me.